Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Hour two just getting underway. Ah, so much going on today. And I was just thinking to myself, where do I begin? Where do you start when there is so much to talk about? And, and look, a lot of this matters. A lot of it is a lot of the stuff out there is uh, political in nature, but there's so much that isn't that nonetheless uh, has relevance to what we're doing. Um, I think I want to start with. An idea that uh, that I had some time ago, and I'm not the one who came up with this idea, but but I, I tried to flesh it out in in a piece that I wrote for uh, St. George News, I think it was about a year ago. Let me check the date here. Maybe it was a couple of years ago. Nope, it was last year. Let's start a cult that brainwashes us into thinking for ourselves. I know, that's... <laughs> Hey, that sounds like the Libertarian Party motto. Hey, we just want to take over the world and then leave everybody alone. Yeah, it's kind of that same same sort of thing. <clears throat> but what sparked the, the thoughts on this were, um, <clears throat> it was about a year ago, I, I sat down with my mom and uh, I made the mistake of watching the evening news with her. And as luck would have it, it was, it was the day that a, a high school student in Texas allegedly murdered 10 people. And as expected, the media narrative that followed the predictable mantra that holding accountable the person who actually causes the harm just isn't enough. Instead, we're supposed to believe that authorities possess sufficient wisdom and power to ensure that such a problem could never happen again if they can only pass enough laws. And this was something that came, that came through clearly in the reporting on the incident and it's a kind of fanatical faith in the power of officialdom to save us from our fears that, um, well, it's very normal. It's actually very mainstream to, to hold that point of view. So much so that it's presumed that uh, no other solutions exist. And anyone who deviates from the one size fits all mentality does so at the risk of being ostracized by the true believers. Now, this cultish mindset of control can be seen in a lot more areas of our lives than simply private gun ownership. When believers become really dogmatic, they can fervently cling to the notion that the collective powers of the state are the answer to any expression of individual liberty. And that includes uh, what we eat or what we drink, how, to, how we wish to educate our children, how we choose uh, those with whom we wish to associate, or even how we might use our private property. I guess the bottom line here is there's no aspect of our personal lives that can't be perverted into a political issue. And this ideology of pathological control has taken over nearly every level of government, academia. In fact, you'll find it in business as well. Its proponents passionately believe there's no problem or catastrophe that can't be preemptively avoided with enough coercive restraint or constraint of other human beings. Now, what's remarkable is how many people have become so thoroughly conditioned to the sociopathic idea that the threat of official violence is the only legitimate way to change the world. Or to affect change, for that matter. 
The uncritical thinking that results from this obsessive attachment to control is deeply rooted in Americans in, in the American psyche. You think about this from the time we're very small children, say about age five, we are conditioned to embrace this false reality that anything not under the control of the state is by definition out of control. And the fact that much of that conditioning takes place in state-run facilities under the direction of people who work for the state, that should be a clue for anybody who's paying attention. The sociopathic need to control others, that's what leads us to give unquestioning allegiance to beguiling people who aspire to rule over others, no matter how many lies they tell us. See, it never occurs to the supplicants who are begging politicians, you've got to do something, that bad things will still happen. And the reason they will happen is because we live in an unpredictable world. It's a world where some things will remain beyond our control. No matter how well we prepare, certain risks will always exist. I particularly like the take that Butler Schaefer had on this. I think it's a very rational perspective on the risks that every one of us faces. He says, most of your life is and will continue to be spent in peaceful relationships with others. But there will be the occasional thug with whom you may have to contend. Your ability to defend yourself will always depend on the actions you take with the resources you have available. But he says you're more likely to prevail if you have disabused yourself of the notion that the state or any other established system will be there to prevent such threats to you. And that's when I started thinking, well, maybe it's time we start a different kind of cult. Instead of that cultish, you know, obedience to or the the cultish adherence to the idea that the state is the solution to all of our problems. What if we start a cult that brainwashes its adherence into thinking for themselves? Instead of seeking charismatic leaders to direct our thinking or to direct our lives, this new cult could help us better understand that we don't need gurus or specialists to tell us what to do. I mean, we can appreciate and we can respect those who have something to teach us. But we don't need to worship them or put them on a pedestal. The better measure of truth of what the the truth of what they teach is whether we can assimilate those good ideas and then go out and make the world a better place through our own actions. It's not about becoming more obedient followers. It's about learning how to improve ourselves in ways that can't happen when we're swallowed up in a group identity. I do believe that the greatest trait of a a true leader is that they don't create more followers. They create more leaders. So to that end, this new cult could teach its members that although bad things can happen and do happen to any one of us, the choice to adopt a victimhood mentality is one of the worst things that we could do. It's an attempt to absolve ourselves of personal responsibility and to think of ourselves instead as passive objects who were controlled by others. This is an example of fashionable but illusory thinking that makes it easier to blame and seek to control others rather than raising the integrity of society by focusing on our own individual integrity. See, the one thing over which we have complete control is the choice of how we respond to our circumstances. You know who taught that truth? I think taught, taught it in the most effective way. There's a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. He survived 
a Nazi concentration camp. And he talked about how the people in those camps, the, the ones who were the best influence for good in the worst of situations, were the people who recognized that they had a choice of how to respond to their circumstances. And it was these people who would go around and minister to the, the people who were suffering in those camps. Yeah, they were suffering too. But you'd never know it by the way that they responded to the other people around them. Man's Search for Meaning. I think that's the, the name of the book by Viktor Frankl. It is well worth your time to read. It's not a big book. It's not a, you know, it's not a big tome like Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. But once you get it through your head that, uh, you know what, I have a choice to make or I have control over this aspect of my life, I can choose how I will respond to whatever circumstances I find myself in. I promise you this, the most inspirational people you will ever meet are the ones who have figured this out. So to that end, who'd like to join me in this cult that uh, thinks for itself you understand, of course, that building a cult on this kind of an idea means that it would, would quickly cease to be a cult in the traditional sense. But it could set the stage for real tolerance and tranquility in a way that our current cultish thinking, the one that binds us to everything political, doesn't allow. Now, I know I'm using kind of loaded language by calling it cultish. Why, you're you're demeaning people who actually belong to cults. I know it's to, to tell someone you're you're acting cultish. It's, it's an epithet. It makes people angry. I don't blame them. So let's start that cult that brainwashes us into thinking for ourselves, and then we'll take over the world, and we'll leave everybody alone. I know, some people are like, Brian, that sounds kind of like something Ayn Rand would say. Well, I'm not saying that I would take her approach, which is, well, you're on your own. It <laughs> sucks to be you if you're having troubles. I think we have uh, I think we have a moral duty to look out for one another. You know, the brother's keeper idea that, that Christ taught. But at the same time, I don't mistake for a moment the idea that uh, government is going to solve every problem that ever comes along and make us happily, you know, live happily ever after. I don't see that uh, being the case. And I hope you don't either. All right, we've got to take a quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills and we will be back on Loving Liberty right after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Lines are open at 801-331-8113. So I've heard a lot of talk about the uh, Alabama abortion law. And, you know, I, I've, I've weighed in on it somewhat. I actually, uh, uh, based on a conversation I had with Ammon Bundy last week, sat down and wrote an article about, uh, about uh, something Ammon had said about how if we're really serious about saving innocent lives... Maybe government isn't the best way to accomplish that. 
In fact, I had this conversation with with uh, a trusted friend here not so long ago about, uh, you know, maybe there's a better way that we could go about standing up for innocent life without having to resort to the force of law. And I was kind of surprised, but uh, my friend took great exception to that and said, well, I think we need to have these laws and we need to we need to do this the way that it's it's been done, you know, and um, anyway. It surprised me, and yet it didn't surprise me, because I think more people probably feel that way than uh, think like uh, like I was thinking. So I want to I want to expand on that a little bit. And there's there's two articles that I want to share with you. One is uh, uh, debunking nine myths surrounding Alabama's abortion law. This is from liveaction.org. And it takes direct aim at some of the, the myths that you're hearing that uh, that purport to say, well, you know, this law will do this and we'll do that. And, and I, I like to I, I really like to think carefully before I, I weigh in on an issue like this, because I just want to make sure I have enough of the facts to make an informed stance. And I'm glad I waited because. Holy cow. This is some good stuff. Let me share it with you. I don't, you know, if, if, if you are vehemently opposed to the Alabama abortion law, that is absolutely your right. But let's, let's make sure we're approaching it from a position of truth and not just, you know, rumors and innuendos. So when Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed the Human Life Protection Act into law last Wednesday, making abortion and attempted abortion felony offenses in the state, there were a lot of people who just went nuts over it. Now, the bill does not hold women who have had abortions criminally or civilly responsible. And there's an exception in the bill to allow abortion to prevent a serious health risk to a woman, though many doctors agree that abortion is never actually medically necessary. And there's a lot of activists right now that uh, have made claims surrounding Alabama's pro-life bill. And so live action news has debunked myths surrounding not just that bill, but also Georgia's heartbeat bill. So here they're going to separate fact and fiction in the Alabama Human Life Protection Act. What this bill does is it makes abortion and attempted abortion felony offenses except in cases where abortion is necessary in order to prevent a serious health risk to the unborn child's mother. It also would provide that a woman who receives an abortion not be held criminally culpable or civilly liable for receiving the abortion, only the doctor committing the abortion would be held criminally liable. But these are a few of the myths that are being spread about this bill, and and here is the the correction that is being offered in interest of, of uh, getting the truth out there. The claim is that women will be criminally prosecuted for abortions. No, the bill clearly states that women will not be held criminally liable from the bill. Quote, relating to abortion, to provide that a woman who receives an abortion will not be held criminally culpable or civilly liable for receiving the abortion. Section 5 states, no woman upon whom an abortion is performed or attempted to be performed shall be criminally or civilly liable. All right, there's the first one put to rest. Next, the claim, women who miscarry will be punished. 
No, abortion is not a miscarriage. Abortion is the intentional killing of a preborn child. Miscarriage occurs naturally. Abortion is clearly defined in the bill as the use or prescription of an instrument, medicine, drug, or any other substance or device with the intent to terminate the pregnancy of a woman known to be pregnant with the knowledge that the termination by those means will, with reasonable likelihood, cause the death of the unborn child. The bill states clearly the term abortion does not include... Activities done with intent to save the life or preserve health of an unborn child. Or to remove a dead unborn child. Or deliver unborn child prematurely to avoid serious health risk to the unborn child's mother or to preserve health of the unborn child. A procedure or act to terminate the pregnancy of a woman with an ectopic pregnancy. A procedure or act to terminate the pregnancy of a woman where the unborn child has a lethal anomaly. The article says Alabama is not trying to penalize women who miscarry. So let's be intellectually honest and fair to the drafters of the bill. The bill clearly defines abortion as the intentional killing of a preborn child. And that's very different from a spontaneous miscarriage in which a baby, unfortunately, passes away naturally. Next, there is the claim that the Alabama law does not allow for any exceptions. This, too, is false. The bill states an abortion shall be permitted if an attending physician licensed in Alabama determines that an abortion is necessary in order to prevent a serious health risk to the unborn child's mother. Except in the case of a medical emergency as defined herein, the physician's determination shall be confirmed in writing by a second physician licensed in Alabama. Now, the bill does not permit abortion for rape or incest. But you need to keep in mind here, statistics show that only a very small fraction of abortions are committed for a rape, incest, or mother's health. U.S. law is intended to punish the criminal, in this case the rapist, and not the victims, which in this case are the baby and mother. Which brings us to the next claim, which is that pro-lifers want to punish children who are victims of rape or incest. False. The pro-life community seeks support, equality, and protection for both the mother and the child, but abuse doesn't justify abortion. The guilty party in a sexual assault case is the rapist, who should be punished as severely as the law permits. Rapists, however, don't face the death penalty. So why should an innocent child be sentenced to death for the crimes of his father? With this Alabama law, children conceived in unfortunate circumstances will be legally protected by law and given a chance at life. Abortion doesn't undo rape. Adding the violence of abortion on top of sexual assault only inflicts further violence upon an innocent woman. Every person's humanity is determined not by how wanted he or she is or in the circumstances surrounding his or her conception, but by the fact that he or she is a human being. In fact, live action and live action news have documented how abortion is actually used to help perpetuate rape. Saying things like and and they point out here that, uh, you know, pregnant teens or preteens are a red flag for possible sexual abuse. Rapists will take victims to abortion facilities to cover their crime. Planned Parenthood and abortion providers often fail to report suspicion of abuse in violation of laws and requirements to receive federal dollars under Title X. A majority of sex-trafficked women may be forced to abort. Even when victims tell Planned Parenthood they were raped, court records show they were returned to their rapists. 
Hollywood, pro-abortion media, and abortion-supportive politicians fail to call out Planned Parenthood. Here's another claim. Men are leading the way to ban abortion. False. This bill, HB 314, was sponsored by a female lawmaker and signed into law by female Governor Kay Ivey. Pro-life organizations are led by women. The Roe v. Wade court decision, on the other hand, was imposed by all men. In fact, the decriminalization of abortion was led by men. And they previously on Live Action News have detailed eight ways pro-abortion men pushed abortion in the days leading up to Roe. Last claim, thousands of women will die from back alley abortions. False. These false claims date before Roe v. Wade. They've been debunked numerous times. They give some pretty solid links here showing how those numbers are fudged. Interesting stuff. By the way, I'll be posting this up. Um, on uh, the Loving Liberty Facebook page. You can check it out for yourself. Regardless of where you stand on the issue, this is one where you'd be better for having looked at these myths and their debunking. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is our number. I kind of feel like I stuck my neck out in in sharing that uh, article with you from uh, from uh, livenews.org. Uh, but but I think it's important. I think it's important that uh, we don't allow the hysteria and this this is true on both sides. You know, that uh, we don't allow hysteria to run rampant and and dictate uh, our understanding of, of uh, an issue here. Now, if, if it sounds like, well, so I'm firmly in favor of the uh, Alabama abortion law. Let me tell you that it's not that clear cut for me. And, and here's the reason why I'm not convinced that uh, I'm not convinced that all this wrangling over abortion isn't uh, a manifestation of dependency on government. And again, I'm hearkening back to the conversation I had with Ammon Bundy last week on this matter. Last week, he pointed out that LDS church leaders in Utah were being asked, asked to consider appointing specialists within local congregations to help church members become more active politically. And seeing as I think it was the Salt Lake Tribune that, that broke this story, uh, they they saw a fair amount of hand wringing and speculation about what could this possibly mean. I mean, come on, the state of Utah is already dominated by the GOP, and and okay, there's a, there's a concern for that. I can understand that. For some people, it would signal an end of the church's publicly stated po- uh, political neutrality. For others, it was uh, raising fears of a power grab by an organization that already exerts considerable influence on public policy within the beehive state. I bet you, though, it's a lot more benign than the knee-jerk reactions might indicate. For instance, the more hands-on approach that uh, the LDS Church was talking about involved calling specialists who would help church members register to vote, help them get absentee ballots, or become more involved in their neighborhood caucuses, the goal being to help 
church members learn to use their civic influence more effectively, regardless of party affiliation. So if you're thinking this, well, it's obviously a big GOP ploy, I don't think so. Now, the fear felt by some is no doubt based in the fact that religion, any religion, represents a competing moral authority to the state. As much as critics like to portray this involvement as the birth of a new inquisition-like intolerance, there's something to be said for institutions that, unlike the state, affect whatever change they're going to affect through persuasion. I mean, come on, think about it. The abolition of legally codified chattel slavery began at the pulpits of Americans' churches and spread throughout society from there. By the way, for the, for the record, it also started in the churches of, of Europe as well. And Europe settled its slavery problem without ever firing a shot. But that's a, that's a story for another day. I guess the bottom line here is that legal and moral aren't always the same thing. In fact, in many ways, issues for which we turn to the state for legalistic remedies often wind up leaving us less civilized as a result. And the abortion issue is a perfect example of this. You know, just a few months ago, social media was ablaze with all the ideological indignation over whether aborting a pregnancy at the moment of delivery should be a legally protected activity. And some states like the state of New York said emphatically, yes. So last week, when the state of Alabama enacted an abortion law that would drastically restrict almost all abortions with very few medical exceptions, In both cases, you had rhetoric and tone of the debate reflecting just how politicized issues tend to drive the opposing sides to extremes. Both sides of the abortion debate view this Alabama law as the potential basis for a Supreme Court case that they hope, or I'm sorry, that some hope could overturn Roe v. Wade. Others fear that it could overturn Roe v. Wade. What the politically addicted fail to recognize, though, is how these kind of power struggles feed the power of the state any time we invite it to become the the ultimate arbiter of what's right and wrong. And this is what Ammon brought up on his weekly podcast, The uh, Liberty Effect, last week. He posed the question whether government intervention is, in fact, the best way to preserve innocent life. He makes a strong case that the moral question at the root of a dialogue of the dialogue has been lost in the struggle to impose solutions on others. Ammon points out that the focus of heated policy debate over abortion has shifted from right or wrong to the use of force of law to achieve a desired outcome. And that means as a result, concerns over the sanctity of of innocent life now have to take a back seat to concerns over reproductive choices that are primarily about escaping consequences. I think the problem here is too many people on both sides prefer to use the force of law to bend other people to their will. And those statist impulses aren't necessarily restricted just to left or right. Politicians and their enablers use issues like this to grandstand and to pander without having to undertake the effort to actually live their lives with a degree of personal righteousness. All they have to do is rail against something to give the appearance of being good. So if the goal is to save innocent lives without resorting to government punishment, 
then we should look to the people whose actions speak to their standards as an example of how that might be done. I would hold up the example of couples who stand outside an abortion clinic, lovingly pleading to adopt and raise the innocent life at stake. That kind of influence can be seen and felt in the civility that reflects not only their love of their fellow man, but also their love of their creator. They persuade, they inspire, rather than compelling each other with government force. But in order to take that approach, you've got to be willing to step off the political path. All right, let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, Brian, Sam calling. Good morning, Sam. Uh, good discussion. So, uh, th- th- this is the last place you'd ever get your head chopped off, what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> so, that ain't going to happen. But what I am going to say is that why are we referring to Roe v. Wade as the law of the land when the Supreme Court only hands down opinions? But everybody calls them rulings. That's part of the problem right off the bat. The fact that we're even making that out like it's the law of the land. Well, the Supreme said so, so it's the law of the land. So basically what you're doing is you're giving uh, you're giving the, the Supreme Court total law-making power by saying that. Okay, that makes sense. So that's part of the problem right off the bat. But I agree, I agree with exactly uh, what uh, Emin is saying and also what, what you're talking about here this morning, and that is the fact that uh, one of the problems that um, we uh, don't do is we, we yell a lot about it, but how many people who are in a position to be able to do it uh, will uh, get out there and offer to adopt them. Now, there's a there's a, a church up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's an independent church called Mercy Seat Christian Church. And I had the opportunity to interview the pastor of that church. His name is Pastor Matt Truella, and you can probably find him. Uh, he writes for various different Christian publications or whatever. But one of the things that he told me when I interviewed him, he... he in addition to his church, he has a thing called uh, uh, Mission to the Unborn. And what he does is he goes out, and his church members go out, and uh, they'll go and protest at abortion clinics, but they do they go one further. He gives every girl there at the clinic his phone number so that if they keep the baby, if they need help, if it's a girl who cannot, uh, you know, maybe, you know, uh, have the resources to uh, be a good mother to the baby like she ordinarily would, he gives them a, a card with a phone number. It says, call me if you need any help. Call our church. And uh, they they go and they help these moms that uh, keep their babies. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful thing. And... Uh, but uh, you can look for you look for them. They're Mercy Seat Christian Church, and they are they're non denominational. They're just a a non five hundred one c three church, and they're up there in the Milwaukee area. But I think they're on the right path. Well, I, I love that there are people leading out with these kind of examples. Yeah, yeah, and I I mean they're still out there at it. And I think they've they've. Uh, They've worked hard enough. They've got a lot of abortion clinics closed there in Milwaukee, and uh, and uh, it was just a thrill to interview him. And uh, so uh, that's a uh, that's a positive solution. But I agree. I mean, that there's, there's so much rhetoric in this that the idea of actually saving the lives is kind of taking a back seat to the uh, 
you know, to the uh, you know, to the whole idea of force of law. And that's what was so interesting about this movie Unplanned that came out. Uh, I haven't had a chance to see it, but I've read so much about it, I almost probably know enough to know what it's all about before I would ever go. And that is the fact that um, it's simply about what goes on in abortion. There's no political stuff in it. Well said. Hey, great to hear from you, Sam. You bet. God bless. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. So it just hit me as, as I'm sitting there through the break, reflecting as I will sometimes do. Man, I've been, I've been hitting a lot of really heavy topics here today, or at least it feels kind of heavy. I mean, look, I had Eric Peters on in the very first uh, part of the show. That's always a treat just because he is so well-spoken, and I think he makes such a, such a beautiful and compelling case for liberty. But then I followed it up with, with a little bit of hard truth from John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute. And, uh, you know, now we've been talking about abortion and, and whether or not, uh, you know, is, is it the right to, is it proper to use the state as the tool to effect change here? And I know this is asking some pretty tough questions because it's a super uncomfortable topic. And yet I think it's one that uh, I, I don't want to risk being silent on something like this. And I don't mean, you know, I'm, I will not sit silent. I'm going to go out there with a bullhorn and a bunch of placards and, you know, pick it up and down the street. Some people do, and I don't fault them for doing that. But ideally, I think the uh, I think the reverence for innocent life is something that has to originate from something higher than simply man-made policy. Which can only punish when someone runs afoul of that policy. I think at some level, we've got to be able to persuade people to um, to step up and and live higher truth than simply what's written, you know, legally, you know, on the books. But how do you do that? How do you convince people who have been taught from the earliest age that they can remember that the government is there to do for us what we can't do for ourselves? It's the answer to all of our problems. I don't have an answer here for you. I think this is one of those instances where personal conscience is actually going to play a much bigger role than, than we may have anticipated. But I still think it's worth thinking about, and I would encourage you, likewise, give it some thought. So, speaking of going to something lighter, <laughs> um, I have a couple of topics here that, that I wanted to share with you. This, I guess I'll do this one in passing. Switzerland has long been one of the freest countries in the world. I don't just mean in the modern era. I mean, going back to uh, the Renaissance, going back to before the Enlightenment, even Machiavelli, the guy who successfully separated right and wrong from decisions in politics to simply what works and what doesn't. I mean, this guy's like the ultimate pragmatist. You look at how politics are conducted in America today, and if you have read Machiavelli's The Prince, 
you will see that uh, th- this is this is the playbook. This is the rule book that uh, most politicians follow. They don't really care so much about right and wrong. It's what works and what doesn't. But even Machiavelli, way back when he was writing, talked about how the cantons, the uh, meaning the Swiss, are among the freest and most armed people in the world. And I know a lot of folks, myself included, have pointed to Switzerland to, uh, you know, point out that, well, they require their citizens to own machine guns, you know, to be part of their defense forces. You know, this, it's the country that famously has stayed neutral through a couple of world wars and through a lot of other little conflicts that other people, you know, have, have been very eager to pursue. How sad to see that uh, under pressure from the European Union, Swiss voters on Sunday agreed to new regulations. And what I'm about to say may offend some, but, uh, but it needs to be said. Just like America used to be exceptional when it had values that made it different from the other countries of the world. It didn't fall prey to the same temptations, but uh, we have fallen prey. And now Switzerland has lost its exceptionalism in that in a referendum held on Sunday, Swiss voters agreed to new gun regulations. Kind of sad. Apparently, gun rights activists lobbied against tighter rules. They pushed the vote in an attempt to oppose new agreements between Switzerland and the European Union. The reform of the European Union's firearms directive places more restrictions on gun owners and centralizes surveillance. Think back to the 2015 terrorist attacks in France. The European Commission drafted a reform of a law enacted in 1991, and a final watered-down version of that law now includes bans on semi-automatic firearms that have been converted into, or I'm sorry, automatic firearms that have been converted into semi-automatics. Any magazines with a capacity of more than 21 rounds, in the case of short firearms, and more than 11 rounds for rifles. It also bans personal defense weapons and even stage and reenactment guns in some cases. The EU also now coordinates an exchange of information between its member states, Regarding the transfer of firearms from one country to another and requiring national governments to monitor gun owners, including through medical and psychological assessments. Now, this new directive is currently being challenged by the Czech Republic at the European Court of Justice. Prague argues that the commission's directive is meddling with national crime prevention policies, an area under the control of the member states, and that the prescribed bans violate the principle of proportionality. UK Advocate General... Eleanor Sharpston said in her advice to the court last month that the directive was mainly targeting the movement of firearms within Europe and that the measures are fully proportional. And the court's likely to follow her advice. You can expect a judgment sometime this summer. Now, according to the article on fee.com, this is from Bill Wirtz. He says it is international knowledge that Switzerland practices different gun laws than other European countries, though it's not a member of the EU The country still makes bilateral agreements with Brussels in order to maintain good relations and what's called the Schengen Agreement. The Schengen Agreement allows Swiss people to freely travel and move anywhere within the European Union and is an asset to tourism and student and labor mobility. Swiss Swiss politicians often support agreements with the European Union, and they use the agreement as an excuse to justify an affirmative vote. Well, if you don't vote yes, the open border treaty could be in danger. So Switzerland's gun culture probably stems from its unique military system. Every 
able-bodied male citizen who reaches the age of majority is conscripted by force and required to complete a set amount of military training and shooting practice throughout his life. Women are exempt from conscription as are Swiss men living abroad, at least in times of peace. Men who refuse to bear weapons on moral grounds can apply for services that don't require the use of a gun. The same men who were required to perform military service are then allowed to take their firearm home afterward, making the Swiss population highly armed in comparison to neighboring countries. Now, Switzerland has an estimated 2.3 million guns in a population of 8.5 million. And this figure likely understates the actual total since Swiss gun owners have only been required to register their firearms since 2008. Nearly 48% of Swiss households own a gun. With the exception of the United States, many consider Switzerland to be the most gun-friendly nation in the world. And the agreement reached between the EU and Swiss government in Bern exempts Swiss militiamen from the rules, provided they fulfill a certain set of conditions relating to regular target practice and medical checks. In essence, the rules are so strict that they could discourage many men from keeping their firearm at home. Disarmament is thus achieved through bureaucracy. So in the vote on Sunday, almost 64% of Swiss voters said yes to these changes, despite opposition from shooting clubs, sports shooters, Eurosceptics, and also gun rights activists. Most likely explanation for the legislation's passive is that two groups were the deciding factor. Women, who've been shown to be less in favor of gun rights and who would be unaffected by the conscription exemption, and international business people and students worried that Switzerland might choose to abandon the Schengen Open Border Treaty as a result of a no vote. So as Bill Wirtz points out here, the perverse reality of the new EU directive is that Europe's gun-friendly nations, the Czech Republic and Switzerland, are having to make far-reaching changes even though neither, neither of these nations has experienced mass shootings or terrorist attacks in recent years despite the higher prevalence of gun ownership. Well, isn't that something? In essence, the EU provided a solution in search of a problem and somehow they got people to agree with it. I've only got about a minute left here, but that's a question worth asking. Why would so many people agree with it? I really think it comes down to, number one, they've been taught, or in some cases maybe indoctrinated into believing, that the state is the one that will save you in your time of need. Come on, we get a lot of that here in America as well. But the second part is, I believe that... I believe they've outsourced the maintenance of their freedom to others, in this case, politicians. Yeah, they voted on it. But part of being a free person, be it a man or a woman or a free young person, means shouldering the responsibility. And in a dangerous, unpredictable world, that's something a lot of people don't want to do. We're very risk averse. Let somebody else do it. Makes me wonder if we're ever going to come to a similar question being posed to the voters here in America. How do you think that would go? I don't think it would go very well, but that's just my take. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 